Amen. Well, we're going to be uh, stepping off of our Route 66 study. We're doing it very often this year um, as we have lofty goals to try to cover the uh, entire Bible in the 52 weeks, 52 weeks of the calendar year. But we are going to step off it today and deal with um, a topic that uh, is kind of loosely in the realm of, of, uh, of family life, okay? And I think we've just been realizing that... Um, there are a lot of swirling winds. As Tom alluded to already in our worship time, there's a lot of competing philosophies and ideologies, and there's a strong cultural current uh, that teaches about uh, issues of family, whether it's marriage or sexuality, um, uh, child-bearing, uh, parenting philosophies. I mean, all these things, there's all these competing philosophies, and important for us uh, to uh, be able to speak into those things, to be clear on those things as Christ's church. Uh, we are told in Romans there to not be conformed to the world. There's a tendency in which we can be kind of put into the world's mold or shaped into the world's mold. But we're not to be conformed to the world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to continue to come back to God's unchanging truth. All right, so we're going we're gonna, to uh, uh, just take a little bit of time to reflect on some of those things here today. Uh, obviously, marriage is being redefined and devalued. I was reading the other day that divorce rates have fallen. Uh, but that's not necessarily good news. It's because marriage is in precipitous decline. People are not making a marriage commitment to each other. And so, hence, there's less divorce. Uh, but, but obviously, things are just changing drastically there in terms of how marriage is perceived and defined. D- uh, uh, God's beautiful design for sex has been twisted and distorted uh, in, in a variety of different ways. Abortion has certainly communicated that children are a burden to be avoided. Uh, There's a wave of challenges, I think, regarding parenting. You know, some current philosophies that should concern us. Uh, We've heard of helicopter parents, right, who hover over their kids. But I heard a new one of snowplow parents that just go out in front of their kids and just get everything out of the way so they don't have to deal with any difficulties or struggles, right? That teacher gave them a bad grade. Well, we're going to get rid of that teacher, (laughs) you know, and... uh, I mean, these are things that uh, uh, lead to a generation of narcissists, uh, the, the parenting philosophies today. Uh, but these, this is the context in which we live, and um, we, if we're not careful, uh, are influenced by it. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at another important area, and that is gender. Certainly a great deal of confusion in this domain Uh, And in the name of gender equality, there has been an attempt to minimize the distinctions between men and women. And this is a tragedy. Uh, It causes us to miss God's beautiful uh, and distinctive designs for gender, for what it is to be male or female. So we're going to step in and look at uh, what the Bible teaches on that. We're going to look at a series of passages briefly, obviously. And then I'm going to kind of try to draw things together with a series of some summary statements and takeaways. And then I want to end with uh, a reflection on first family. I think we need to think about family in a certain way. And so we'll we'll end there today. But uh, Genesis 1, of course, is where we first encounter um, the distinctions in gender in the creation account here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. So under the the umbrella of man or mankind or human beings, God created two 
genders. A tremendous statement of equality here in this statement. Both male and female uh, bear the image of God. Um, We read on here in verse 28, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So closely tied here to the creation of male and female uh, is this whole arena of procreation, right? That this is one of the driving um, principles behind uh, the distinction in genders was to allow for childbearing, for reproduction, to fill the earth with God's image bearers. So again, gender just tied to uh, God's uh, mission for uh, humanity in terms of filling the earth. Uh, Again, uh, procreation being something that is only possible in the coming together of male and female. Uh, God had declared everything good in his creation. We see that in chapter 2. But we come to to verse 18, we see a revised assessment. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So, Uh, As God looked out over his creation, there was something lacking. There was something that was incomplete. It was not healthy for Adam to live in isolation. It's not healthy for any of us to live in isolation, right? We are created for community, to know God and to know others. And so God here determines to make a helper for Adam. It's interesting uh, how God sort of brought Adam along to understand his need. Notice what it says here in chapter 2, verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So there's this parade before Adam. It's an audition to see who, uh, who he could fellowship with, right? And there's no... There's no one that corresponds to him. He sees the leopards come by, right? At least two of them, uh, male and female. The elephants come by, the giraffes come by, the dogs come by. But there's no one that corresponds to Adam. And so in this very visual teaching object lesson, God sort of brings that to bear in, in, in in Adam's mind. And he determines again to make a helper for Adam. This word helper is a very interesting word. Uh, It is not a demeaning word. Uh, God himself is identified as our helper in at least two places, in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Um, Adam needed help, right? And God sent him Eve. And she was not just a helper, but a fit or suitable helper. And that word's really interesting. It has to do with uh, standing in front of you, uh, reflecting you, corresponding to you. It's a great statement or image of equality. Adam finally looked this woman in the eye and said, she belongs with me, right? uh, Just a a great statement there. 
Uh, she was his counterpart, his reflection. And while helper is not a demeaning word, it is a complementary word. Adam and Eve were equal and of the same essence, but they were not the same. The woman stands opposite the man. She is strong where he is weak and vice versa. Here was Adam's response. Then the man said, this is, uh, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam recognizes her as being of the same essence, right? The same substance. Again, a great statement of equality. And even the names, man and woman, or in the Hebrew, Isha and Ish. Isha, she was named Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Uh, their, their names reflected unity and equality. And something, of course, is communicated here that goes even beyond Adam and Eve. The close of this section. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So he's, he's moving beyond just Adam and Eve and says, when a husband and wife come together in a marriage relationship and there's sexual union, that reflects that they are uh, united in essence. They, they correspond to one another. Uh, there's something very powerful there. So as the church, we speak against illicit sex, not because sex is so bad, but because it is so good, because it is sacred. And we dare not cheapen it or consign it to the status of mere recreation. But we begin to see gender roles surfacing here in Genesis one and two, and even into chapter three in the fall. Uh, Adam was given the instructions from God before Eve was created. So uh, the whole thing about the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat from it, right? The, the, these instructions were given to Adam before Eve was created. So Adam automatically here now has a responsibility to convey those instructions to Eve. In that sense, he's given a position of leadership in the family, in this newly formed family, um, because of the way God structured that. And when Adam and Eve took from that fruit, when they sinned, uh, God comes to Adam. Adam was held to account. And it's very interesting, Adam dropped the ball here. Eve took some of that, that, that fruit and ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam stood right there beside her and was passive, was silent. And when they sinned, God came to talk to Adam. <laughs> Again, a principle of what's often called male headship or leadership responsibilities that are invested in the husband in a marriage relationship. So we, we see those things surfacing uh, here in the opening chapters of Genesis. Now, if we skip ahead to the ministry of Jesus, we certainly see Jesus affirming the equality and the dignity of men and women, right? Jesus came to the defense of women who were vulnerable or mistreated. Uh, women were some of his most faithful followers. We find women present there at the cross when most of the disciples had left. And women were uniquely honored by being given the privileged position uh, there at the resurrection, the first ones to see Jesus raised from the grave. Uh, we could look at different passages that I think would reflect Jesus' uh, heart and uh, honoring women and, and giving them dignity in a culture that was uh, very patriarchal. 
but I wanted to just highlight this one passage out of Luke chapter 8. Soon afterward, he, that's Jesus, went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Isn't that interesting? We don't think about this too much, do we? Uh, Twelve disciples were with Jesus, traveling from town to town, and so were some women. We don't know the nature of that. We don't know the logistics, the arrangements, how it all looked. But the sense is that they were uh, a vital part of Jesus' ministry. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So they served, uh, but I would suggest to you that they served in distinct and complementary ways. So women are not included among the twelve. They weren't engaged primarily in preaching ministry per se. Uh, They were involved in other aspects of the ministry behind the scenes. Uh, Obviously these women were women of means. They were helping to support uh, the itinerant ministry of Jesus and the disciples through their finances and maybe organizing things in other ways as well. Again, men and women equal, but not the same. We step into some of the letters in the New Testament, uh, primarily Paul and Peter we're going to look at here today. Um, Here, Paul addresses gender specifically as it relates to corporate worship and the church. So this is the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2. He's talking about when the church gathers for worship. Uh, here, here, Here are his instructions for men and women. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, we're going to see that women are called upon to pray as well, but I think in this particular context, we do see that men are to take spiritual leadership in the context of the church. Uh, Men are not to be passive. Men are not to simply shrink back, but should step forward and lead in prayer. Uh, Lifting holy hands, living holy life, bringing... The hands are what you use for your daily tasks, and they're to bring their, their Monday through, through Saturday uh, lives and vocations to the Lord, and be able to raise holy hands, clean hands to the Lord in prayer. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So women are to dress with modesty and honor. They're to do this um, because it reflects their orientation towards God. Uh, In other words, when we gather for corporate worship, we don't gather to draw attention to ourselves or to promote ourselves. We gather to promote God. (laughs) So a woman who says, I love God and I want to worship him, is not going to seek to draw attention to herself, either through immodesty or undue decoration, right? So Paul's just kind of teasing this out. Uh, If we read on in this text, uh, God desires women to take a supporting role uh, in the church. Uh, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness 
with self-control. Yowzers, right? We're talking countercultural types of thoughts and notions here that Paul is laying out. Uh, women are smart and capable uh, as men, given access to education. Uh, Paul touches on that here. Women were to learn in the context of the church, which was, would not have necessarily been normal in the first century, where women were often viewed as little more than property. Uh, but they were not to teach or have authority over men in the context of the church. They were not to engage in the preaching ministry of the church or the elder office, the office of authority, which is where Paul's going to go next into the, the following chapter here. Paul makes it clear that these gender distinctions are timeless, woven into the very fabric of creation. So you see there where it says, for or because Adam was formed first. So Paul's not upset with the people uh, here in the church in Ephesus. Um, he's not trying to quell pro problematic women. He's just going back to, to point to a pattern that was established in creation. Right? So a timeless pattern. By the way, whenever you see Paul talking about gender, almost every time he goes back and roots it in a timeless creation principle, which I think is helpful. This is not the result of the fall. Um, it, it's a creation pattern. Paul goes on here at the end to cite childbearing as one of the unique contributions of the female gender. Uh, a man might teach when the church is gathered, exercise certain influence, right, over the church. But a godly woman exercises tremendous influence in the home. Um, this is not to say that every woman will marry or that every married woman will bear children, uh, but the female gender makes a unique contribution in nurturing future generations. And again, it's not to say that this is the only role of women is to bear children. We could go to Proverbs 31 and, and different places where we see women who care for their household and are buying and selling property and doing all sorts of entrepreneurial ventures but this is sort of one of the unique contributions that women bring to the table as, 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 a, as a, the, the female gender in contributing in ways that men cannot. And so Paul seeks to highlight that and to laud that and to praise that role. 1 Corinthians 11. Here's another text. Paul writing now to the church in Corinth. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This passage is so helpful in connecting dots for us. Uh, the key word here, of course, is head, which has a semantic range of meaning. But I believe here in this particular context, it's referring to authority. Uh, but notice three things that, that he says. Uh, the head of every man is Christ. So... Uh, we are all under the authority of Christ, right? Common ground. The head of a wife is her husband. So a wife is under her husband's authority. But notice this last one. This is the mind-blowing one. The head of Christ is God. So Jesus is equal with God, right? He's the second person of the Godhead. But he plays a, a, a subordinate role before the Father, 
We see it most clearly, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is preparing to endure the cross and he says, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but, but your will be done, right? He submits himself voluntarily to the authority and the leadership of the Father within the triune Godhead. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful picture of what it looks like to be equal but distinct. Equal in essence, but distinct in role. And I think, again, really helpful section there. Uh, Paul actually outlines here um, roles for both men and women, or or, or roles that they carry out together. Uh, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays, every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So actually Paul has a, a, a picture here of both men and women praying and prophesying in the church. Um, prophesying doesn't generally mean telling the future. That's usually what we think about when we think about prophecy. Um, matter of fact, Paul's going to talk about prophecy in chapter 14 of Corinthians. And he uses um, a series of words to describe what happens in prophecy uh, where there's simply a bold, clear declaration of God's truth. Uh, the church is strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. Chapter 14, verse 3. Those are, that's what happens when someone prophesies. So uh, I, I get to stand up here. I have the privilege to declare God's word to you in a very uh, public setting. But... Hopefully you've had a chance somewhere along the line today to speak truth into someone else's life uh, as you were getting settled into your, your seat or in, a, in a, a, a class gathering or someone you realized was discouraged and you, 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 you maybe quoted a verse to them and prayed with them, right? I mean, this is a ministry not just of the pastor or the elders. This is a ministry that we all share, men and women, young and old. And Paul is lauding, lauding that here that that's going to be a ministry for both men and women. But he does have this caveat that the wife is, or the woman is to have her head covered. Um, In that culture, that was symbolic of being under authority. Just that, 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 that piece of fabric right on the head that would just convey that I'm, I'm under authority. It was a, it reflected humility. It doesn't mean anything in our culture. And I think the particular application is culturally bound here. Um, but in that culture, when, again, Paul's essentially telling them, I want you to have a posture of humility as you carry out this ministry of prayer and prophecy and speaking truth in the church. Uh, reflect the fact that you are ultimately under authority. Authority of your husband, if married, and certainly under God's authority. Once again, uh, Yeah, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So here Paul again gives his timeless, this is rooted in creation, right? He's not upset with the Corinthians. There's a lot of problems in Corinth that Paul had to confront. But he's not not instituting policies because he's reacting against things that are going on in their culture. He's continuing to teach them unchanging creation patterns about gender and gender roles. I love this statement here, too, at the, 
at the end of this, uh, another just really strong statement on equality. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So Paul basically says we need each other, men and women. Uh, the, first, the first woman came out of man, right, out of Adam's rib. But every man since has come out of woman. You know, so he just has a really neat way of sign of saying our, our interconnectedness as men and women. And of course, ultimately, we all come from God. <laughs> so there's no room for exalting ourselves here, for um, lauding ourselves over the other gender. So again, in the midst of all these strong statements of equality, in the midst of distinction, 1 Corinthians 14 for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women shall keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. The passages just keep getting more interesting, don't they? Now, think of this is still 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 14. In chapter 11, Paul already talked about women praying and prophesying in the church. Okay, so he obviously doesn't mean that they're to be totally silent. I think, again, it's a reflection uh, of uh, the fact that women should not participate in the, the authoritative preaching ministry of the church. Okay. Uh, again, Paul here doesn't relate it to creation, but notice he does say, as the law also says. So he's appealing to God's revealed truth, and apparently some aspect of the law that would have been binding on the New Testament church. He might be actually reflecting back to Genesis 1 and 2, uh, early creation patterns as part of the books of Moses, right? But in any sense, Paul again is, is not just picking on them, he's, he's, he's taking them back to God's unchanging pattern for male and female. One final passage here I want to touch on in 1 Peter. Again, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14. All of these are very specifically in the context of the church gathered. This is how men and women are to relate to one another. This is their, their roles. Uh, here in 1 Peter 3, we actually, uh, the focus shifts to the home. Specifically to the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Um, Paul also taught these same things. It's often referred to as the household codes. So in Ephesians and Colossians, and then here in 1 Peter, they address uh, these, these structures, uh, particularly in the marriage relationship. So Peter says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Peter encourages wives to come under the authority of their husbands, even if their husbands are not Christians or are not walking with God. Now let's just offer a very clear caveat here that I don't believe a woman should stay in a situation where she's being abused. Okay, Some have potentially used this to coerce a woman to stay in a in a situation where she's being physically or sexually abused, 
that, that, is, that is not an excuse. Uh, uh, certainly wouldn't counsel a woman in that way. But Peter is saying that a woman has a very unique opportunity to influence even an ungodly husband by her gracious responses to win him. That's wonderful language. To win him to Christ. Peter goes on to call women to true inner beauty. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Uh, This is the kind of beauty, a beauty of spirit that endures, ladies, when outward beauty fades. And I love here, uh, he actually brings up the pattern again. Here's his, he, he roots it back in, in history, right? Pattern of Abraham and Sarah. And uh, that's a great thing to think about. I mean, Sarah was, if you read that account in Genesis, Sarah was turning heads. She was like 90. I mean, Abraham's still having to pretend like she's his sister. And I don't think it's just because of her physical beauty. I, I don't. I think there was a, she was a beautiful woman. She was beautiful in spirit, in countenance, in, in every way. Um, and so Peter's just sort of driving at this timeless beauty um, that goes well beyond physical appearance. And then husbands, at the end of this passage, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So husbands are charged with living with their wives in an understanding way, to actually get to know their wives. Um, And identifies the woman here as the weaker vessel. Again, not a statement of inferiority, Simply stating that she is put together differently. So, you know, which is more important, steel or fine china? They're both pretty valuable, depending on what you, what you need, right? But they're clearly put together and constructed differently. And Peter is urging husbands, understand that your wife has been put together differently than you have. Right? She has different sensitivities. She's more sensitive. My, wife's pick, my wife picks up on things. You know, I'm... I'm plowing ahead, uh, and she's noticing things along the way that I am just oblivious to, right? So uh, I think this is what, what Peter is, is challenging the husband with. Be, be careful that you don't override her circuits or in your harshness or your bluntness that you hurt her, right? So he, he's saying there's no excuse for being domineering. There's no excuse for being harsh with your wife, um, Identifies her again here as uh, heir with you of the gift of life. So this, this woman is a child of God, just like you are, right? You both stand to receive an inheritance as God's children. So again, a strong statement of equality, but again, a recognition of differences and distinctions uh, in how we're put together and our role. And, of course, the strong exclamation point at the end, so that your prayers will not be hindered, right? If you don't have a a good relationship with your wife, you don't have a good relationship with God, right? God 
feels very strongly about how a husband treats his wife. So when we talk about headship, we talk about male leadership, we're primarily not talking about power. We're talking about responsibility. The husband is called upon to sacrifice uh, for the woman, to be sensitive to her needs, to lead her well. In Ephesians 5, um, the husband is called to, to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, right? This is the this is the model. So we always have to think of headship in those, in those terms. All right, a few summarizing statements here. Gender roles are established by creation, not by the culture. There's a timelessness to these issues. Uh, gender is determined by biology. Now, our culture has come to use words a little differently. Generally, now in our culture, uh, sex is used to describe biological differences between male and female and gender is now often used to describe my perceptions how I view myself okay so I realize at a technical level uh, there are some distinctions made in the, in those words between gender and sex but I'm just speaking broadly uh, to say that gender is determined by biology my feelings do not change the objective reality of who I am as, me, as either male or female. Um, we, we are more than just physical bodies, right? But we're not less than physical bodies. Our, our bodies are part of who we are. And so as Christians, uh, we, we hold a very high view of the created world. And we recognize the value of our bodies, even in the midst of the brokenness of our bodies, and so we, we, we don't ever want to tear apart the, the body and the soul, right? Our bodies are part of who we are. There are, of course, very rare cases where a person's biology is not clear. And we grieve over that. It's part of the, the nature of a fallen world. Uh, but again, inherently gender is determined by biology. Number three, men and women are equal in essence but distinct in function. So there's some theological words that are used out there, egalitarian and complementarian. Uh, egalitarians, both, both would say that men and women are equal. Uh, egalitarians would say men and women are equal, but the same. They ought to be able to do the same things. Uh, complementarians would say men and women are equal, but distinct. And if you didn't pick up on it already, I believe that the Bible teaches a complementarian view of maleness and femaleness okay here's a statement from the danvers confession which i thought was was really good both adam and eve were created in god's image equal before god as persons and distinct in their manhood and womanhood i think that's a great that's a great statement uh, if i were to summarize it there's always uh, a danger in this to try to boil it down a little bit men are primarily called to lead provide and protect women are primarily called to follow support and nurture and I say primarily because there are often circumstances where women are required to lead and support, i.e. single-parent families. And there are sometimes circumstances in which a man is limited in his ability to provide or protect in a way that he might want to, let's say because of disability, right? So uh, these are not uh, airtight categories, but I think give us a sense at least of some of God's design for gender. Uh, in my purview here, you know, I, I can't help but just think about men, especially young men, and the need 
to grow up, right? And embrace um, leadership and responsibility. We have these classical caricatures in our culture of a guy in his 30s living in his parents' basement playing video games all day. You know, uh, there's a desperate need for men to lead, to, to step out and to serve and to support and to encourage and provide. Um, and you don't have to be married to do that. Okay, but that, that, that should be a normal progression of, of godly uh, manhood. Number four, we should celebrate the unique and invaluable contributions of women in the home and in the church. This needs to be done on more than just Mother's Day. We need to do a better job of affirming the arduous and exhausting work of being a homemaker. Uh, Eric Metaxas uh, has written a number of really fine biographies. And he wrote a, a little series of biographies, short biographies on, on women, uh, entitled Seven Women and the Secret of Their Greatness. And he had some specific criteria as he thought about who he was going to highlight. Um, and this is what he said about his, his selection process. He said, when I consider the seven women I chose, I see that most of them were great for reasons that derive precisely from their being women, not in spite of it. So sometimes we have this notion that if, you know, this woman who, who succeeds in the business world and, and um, or, you know, if it's Marvel Universe, right, she's fighting and she's, she, she's doing man-like things and that's all good and well. But sometimes if we're not careful, uh, we conclude that a woman has to do man-like things to be successful. She might do man-like things in the workplace or in government. That's fine. But, but Metaxas was wanting to highlight the distinctive contributions of women that men aren't making. Like, let's celebrate women because they're women. And um, so I thought it was just a unique perspective that I think, I think was, a, was a reminder to me. We need to be lauding and acknowledging some of the unique and invaluable contributions of women. Number five, women are not asked to submit to all men. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've seen either uh, descriptions of how men and women are to, to live out their roles in the church or in the home in the context of marriage, uh, but Scripture provides... Uh, tremendous latitude for women to lead or hold positions over men in the marketplace, in the university, in government, right? So um, there's tremendous freedom uh, outside of those specific arenas. Six, we should not superimpose extra-biblical gender markers. Um, So we have these stereotypes that I'm not sure are really helpful. Matter of fact, I'm quite sure they're not helpful, right? Real men like eat copious amounts of meat and they burp and, you know, they like to shoot guns and, you know, all this sort of thing. And so if you're a guy and you, like, don't fit that, you're artistic. You know, you, you maybe think, am I really a man? You know? I mean, take Esau and Jacob, right? I mean, Esau was hairy, and he's always out in the fields hunting, and, and Jacob's in whipping up stuff in the kitchen. You know, he had a gentler disposition. They're both men, 
They're both, I'm going to say they're both masculine. But sometimes if we hold up these stereotypes, we actually do a disservice. And we maybe create frustration and dissonance in the minds of people. If we say a woman, you know, she always wears pink and she always is doing her nails. And you have this woman that says, well, I like the outdoors and I, you know, I like to hike and, and uh, you know, I, uh, man, maybe, maybe I don't, maybe I'm not really a woman. You know, well, that, that's silliness. But again, sometimes if we're not careful, we can superimpose things that actually become destructive and confusing for people. So there are some, some gender roles. I've been suggesting to you there are some foundational gender roles, but there's a lot here that is not really described and certainly a great deal of diversity among men and women. All right, enough of that. Seven, our speech should be characterized by grace and truth. And I'm just going to acknowledge that we find ourselves in tricky places, right? Uh, I've had conversations with a few of you in recent weeks. You have family members who are identifying as something other than their biological sex, or, or I'm going to say God-given gender, right? And so how do you engage that? Some of you are in workplaces where you're required to use pronouns for people that do not correspond to their uh, their, their gender by birth. Um, and, and how do you think through those things? And I think obviously if it's a person who's not a believer, uh, in some ways to me it's like a non-issue. Like what they need is the gospel. I don't expect them to live uh, uh, according to uh, biblical morality. Uh, I want them to know Christ. And so that's going to shape my discussions. If it's a person who claims to be a follower of Christ and is choosing to not live in line with God's design for gender, then there's probably going to be a different type of conversation. But in any regard, it should be characterized by both truth and grace. Uh, we ought to grieve and feel compassion for people who are struggling with confusion in these domains. Uh, it shouldn't be something we joke about uh, that puts off signals you know, to people. We ought to, be, we ought to reflect true, genuine compassion when we talk about people who are struggling with this or when we talk to people who are struggling with this. All right, I told you we we're going to end with a, a quick reflection on first family. Uh, a little bit of a family emphasis today, thinking through some of the dynamics of uh, what it means to be a godly man and a godly woman. Uh, the family is obviously of critical importance, but we must also acknowledge that the biological family is not ultimate. Jesus came to inaugurate a new family relationship in the family of God. Here's Matthew 12. We could look about four or five passages that Jesus goes out of his way to say to redefine family, to redefine ultimate family, or to redefine first family. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I don't think Jesus was trying to diss his biological mom. He wasn't trying to diss Mary or be really cruel to her. He's just trying, he used it as an opportunity to make a point. Oh, you want to talk about family? Here's my family. You know, redefining true family to be spiritual family. And the reason I emphasize this is because I do think there at times can be an idolization of the nuclear biological family. And the losers there, well, we're all losers in that, but the losers are singles, widows, people who've been ostracized from their family because of their faith in Jesus Christ. 
We have a, you say, I'm not married, Pastor, so half of what you said today doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does, because you're part of a family. <laughs> and uh, the, the, these principles, uh, uh, you know, I, I think speak into uh, our identity as members of the household of God. And so I just want us to have that framed perspective as we think about family, um, that we have a robust view primarily of our relationship, uh, again, within the household of God.